0: My uh, my name's Mark H., and I'm an alcoholic. I'd like to thank you all for giving me a chance to share my story with you and uh, what the program of Alcoholics Anonymous has done for me and for my family, and uh, because it's a constant reminder that something has happened that I could not do. I tried everything I knew how to do to make it happen, and yet it would not happen. Uh, I'd like to thank you people for asking me to talk. Uh, my sobriety date is February 7th of 1990 and for that I will be eternally grateful to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous because I was not going to stay here 20, <laughs> 20 minutes, don't you see? I have got to fly out the door and I've got to get me a drink. And, uh, I was fortunate enough to meet a person in Alcoholics Anonymous like he's talking about, a, a guy named Barefoot Bob. Uh, I got sober in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And I was certain that Barefoot Bob was a beaver trapper. (laughs) I mean, you know, the Coeur d'Alene Mountains were right outside the window, and Coeur d'Alene Lake, and he had an old crusty old leather vest, and he smoked this old pipe that looked like he carved it out of a tree stump. I mean, it really did, and uh, he had this big white beard that looked like he just walked right out of the Civil War, you know? And uh, I walked into the meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous absolutely broken. I had experienced in my life what it talks about in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, is that alcohol will beat you into a state of reasonableness. And that's what happened to me. I had visited you people over and over and over again with a better idea about how I needed to run my life. And this guy, Barefoot Bob, I thought he's a beaver trapper, Welcome, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. (laughs) And I thought, this guy is over the top. You need to back up, buddy. And Barefoot Bob had this thing that I've come to know now because I've seen it in other people and I've experienced it in my own life. But I did not have it at the time, and that was a certain something in the eyes. And Bob had it. He had what had happened to him in Alcoholics Anonymous in his eyes. And what I had was I'm a shoe man. I know what kind of shoes you're wearing because my head, I can't hold it up. If you look into my eyes, you will know what's going on deep down inside of me. That's what I had. And Bob sat me down in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in a candlelit room in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And they lit up these candles, and they turned down the lights. And Bob says, Is there anybody having a problem as it relates to alcoholism? And I thought in my head, I need to ask these people for some help. I'm dying of alcoholism. I cannot take it or leave it alone, no matter how great the necessity of the wish. I can't stop. But what my mouth said was, <laughs> and you people just did what those people did. They were laughing and yeah, we need people like you. Yeah. You know, Come with us, you know. I thought they wanted to hear what I had to say. They just wanted to feel the gratitude from hanging out with me. You know? This guy's falling apart, and I'm not. (laughs) That's what was happening. And this guy, Bob, he led me around, you know. Hey, we're going here. And after the meeting, the first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, he did something that I see people do in Alcoholics Anonymous all the time. And He came up to me after the meeting, and I don't remember what they talked about. I'm sure they were talking about the 12 steps and, you know what, if you embrace this way of life, you too can have this thing. I'm quite certain, you know. What I heard was blah, 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 blah. I'm just sitting in there weeping. Bob came up to me after the meeting, and he did what a buddy of mine, Charles, does all the time when he has something important to say. When Charles has something important to say, he'll hold you by the elbow. And it'll hold you in place. And then generally, it comes from way down deep in his heart. And you hear the voice of God. And this man, Bob, looked me in the eye and he said, why don't you come with us? And he didn't mean that figuratively. You know, hey, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. Hope we see you tomorrow. He led me out of the room and introduced me to a man named Wade that I found out later in a lucid moment that he sponsored and they took me to Denny's. There were some people in an earlier meeting that talked about how you don't see that in AA a lot anymore. And I sat down on the table across from Bob and Wade. And Bob looked up at the waitress and he said, do you have honey? And she said, yeah, we got honey. And he says, I want you to bring me a glass of orange juice and a jar of honey. And he, had me, he slid the orange juice across the table and he said, drink half of that. that's all I could say (laughs) and I drank off half of it and he pours all this B honey in there and it looks like I know some of you will remember this it looked like a lava lamp (laughs) 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 and he's swirling it around I can remember staring at those for hours on end (laughs) Oh, a lava lamp. <laughs> it's going to be a big night. <laughs> and he slides it across the table and it goes down like goldfish, for God's sakes, you know. Not that I've eaten any at any parties. <laughs> no. And all of a sudden, man, within a few minutes, that I'm flying apart feeling was like, wait a minute, I'm not flying apart, Oh, shaking so bad I can't light a cigarette, and then all of a sudden I can light a cigarette, well, what's going on here, and so Bob and Wade started talking about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, these steps, and the book, you know, you read this book, and we do this, we go to these meetings, blah, 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 and the next day I went to a second meeting, and Bob and Wade were in that second meeting, and uh, Bob's early in my sobriety wasn't my sponsor, but I hung out with Bob and I hung out with Wade a lot, a little clubhouse in Corlane, Idaho. And uh, early in my sobriety, I don't know, three or four meetings. I'm at some meeting in Spokane. I got my head down, you know. God, I don't know what I need to do. I've never really given this Alcoholics Anonymous a chance. I've tried it my way for so long. Please help me. I look up and I know that it's somebody who wants to know who I am, you know. But my mouth says, "Would you be my partner?" <laughs> but my head was saying, "Oh yeah, they want to know who I am, you know." And uh, would you be my partner? And he said, "Sure." And it just so happened he happened to be big on the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous and the steps that had saved his life by working them that he was released from the compulsion to drink over and over and over again. We would sit down, and I would discuss these things with him. You know, we'd say some prayers. and It wasn't very long in the process where uh, that guy, Bob, that I was hanging out with, he said, "Uh, we're going to go to the Kootenai County Jail, and I'm going to take you with you. Come on, we're going to get in the car. Don't you understand, Bob, I don't know anything about staying sober, you know. Get in the car. We're going to the Kootenai County Jail. I'd go to the Kootenai County Jail and talk about what I didn't know about Alcoholics Anonymous. That's what he told me. He said, why don't you go to the jail and you can tell them what didn't work. Because that's what my life was. I had tried over and over and over again. I moved to California, thinking California was the answer. I had moved to Idaho, thinking Idaho's the answer. Trout fishing, fresh air. <laughs> Got to be a solution to alcoholism. <laughs> you know? They sell booze in both of them places. I had lived my life locked up in houses peeking out of the windows. I had tortured and destroyed everyone who ever cared anything for me. I had gotten what I like to call the look over and over and over again, that I would come to and people are going, this absolute look of disgust on their face. And I'm thinking, why are you looking at me like that? Because I just now materialized here. (laughs) You know, I'm on an episode of Star Trek, (laughs) you know, I just got to these coordinates. But apparently that wasn't the case. And some of those situations were quite tragic. Some of them were my family members screaming at the top of their lungs. Look at what you've done. And I came to in the coordinates, and there's blood spatter all over the kitchen wall. There's spittle and snot flying out of a family member's mouth. And they're telling me that I had twisted their arm till it almost came off. And I'm going, what are you talking about? I just materialized to these coordinates. Don't you remember we were going to go get a case of quartz and just party? That's what I remember. I remember getting a case of quartz, going down to a a stereo store to buy a new stereo when I actually had, like, two mercury head dimes. (laughs) It's like, we don't have electricity. Seems like a great idea. Might as well go get a new stereo. We don't have electricity. We're burning the furniture to stay warm. Back then they had this two-by-four furniture. They would make everything out of two-by-fours. So we're in the, in the living room beating furniture and throwing it in the fireplace. Seemed like a good idea at the time. You know, God, that's my life without you people. It's tragic. I'm materializing. These horrible things have happened. And I think the solution is go somewhere else. I go to California, and guess what? I have two beautiful little daughters. I call them my little angels. I call them my little angels. And my ex-wife calls me and says, can you come over and watch your little angels? Well, sure, honey. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to beat this game. I'll not drink no matter what. And I go over to watch my little angels, and all of a sudden I remember wait a minute, there's a bottle of snops up underneath this trailer. Maybe I'll just have a little sip to take the edge off. And I have a little sip to take the edge off, and the next thing I know, I'm materializing in a chair that's smoldering away, and the, and the embers are crawling across the carpet towards my two little angels. And I just materialized on the spot. And somebody's screaming at the top of their lungs to let them in, and it's my ex-wife. Now, she didn't have to go to a single Al-Anon meeting to understand that you can kill yourself, but you're not going to kill my daughters. and She left. She left. Next day, I come home, and they're gone. And this is the thing I experienced in alcoholism over and over and over again was that I thought in my heart of hearts that the next time's going to be different. Don't you see? The next time is going to be different, and I have the greatest of intentions. And three days later, in the east side of San Jose, where they were killing people, for Michael Jordan tennis shoes by the way was not a real good neighborhood my wife and my two daughters are sitting on these suitcases and some sawgrass about knee-high and I see them, and I drive over there and I do what I've always done in my alcoholism what do you think you're doing I make it your fault it ain't my fault it's your fault What do you think you're doing? There's what my wife said, my ex-wife. She said, Mark, I love you very dearly. Your daughter Courtney and your daughter Paige love you very dearly. If you will get some help, I will come home right now. And I looked right at her and I believed it deep down in my heart of hearts. Baby, it was just a bad night. It'll be different next time. Don't you understand? And believed it. She went off to uh, Whittier, California with my daughters and I did not see them for a long time. I locked myself in that house. I moved numerous times. Oh, this is a funny story. This is a rocket to stardom. (laughs) I locked myself in this house in San Jose and uh, I had called her about the kids i was finally able to track her down and get a phone number and i called her about the kids and i don't know man maybe i'd been sober five six days i'm gonna do this i can do it i don't need you people i don't need that book and i called her up and she said you've been drinking ain't you yeah do i breathe air you know (laughs) And when we had this argument on the phone, I slammed the phone down. And for some reason, I just turned around and stuck my fist right through the window. And the next thing you know, man, I'm almost cutting off a couple of fingers on this hand, you know. And the job that I had, they didn't have any light duty, so they gave me six weeks off while these tendons and stuff were repairing. And I thought, you know what? I'm living in San Jose, California. It's the middle of the summer. Might as well go down to the liquor store and get me some of that tequila. (laughs) So I took the garden hose and I pulled it out in the driveway and I poked little holes in it. Put the lounge chair out there and I walked down to the liquor store and got me a bottle of Cuervo tequila and some grenadine and limes. and It looked very flowery. (laughs) And six weeks later, you know, I'm laying out in that lounge chair, drinking right out of the blender. You know, early on I was pouring it in glasses. <laughs> Didn't end up that way. But you could you could pass out in that lounge chair, and you could come to. And if you were tilted at the right angle, there'd be a little rainbow floating by. Oh yeah, it was like a Jamaican holiday <laughs> in a gravel driveway in San Jose. <laughs> And six weeks later, I'm peeking out of the windows, you know. Get away from here. Leave me alone. You know, people from work, friends calling. I got this. I don't need your help. And one night I'm laying there and I hear this coming from somewhere in the house. And I was pretty sure it was the registers. It was an old frame house in San Jose, and it had those great big tall registers. I guess energy crisis didn't happen when they built this thing. And I thought, now, how can these guys make so much noise? Because they're only nine inches tall. <laughs> running around inside the registers. And... Oh, it was serious. It wasn't nothing f- funny. <laughs> this was serious, serious business. So I called the police. Hey, you got nine inch people running around your registers. You need law enforcement. <laughs> they told me you're insane. Well, I proved them right. I proved them right. So the San Jose police show up in the front yard, and, uh, you know, I go out there and. I don't know if you all like movies, but there was a movie years ago called Papillon. And you remember that scene when Steve McQueen sticks his head out of the cell door and he goes, how do I look? <laughs> and he's been living in there with nothing to eat for weeks and you know uh, his eyeballs are all bugged out. Yeah, Well, that was pretty much, you know, I was, it was horrible. But anyway, I tried to explain to this San Jose police officer about these nine-inch people in the registers. And he leans over and he goes, (laughs) into his little shoulder mic. And I immediately figured, yeah, that's exactly how they sound. Uh, I figured he'd heard them, you know. And pretty soon, one of his uh, partners was circling around the outside of my peripheral vision. I saw him back there with the net, you know. And he goes, he goes, he said, "Uh, Why don't you go in and try to get some rest, Mr. Hodges? He said, You're obviously just kind of wired out and you just need some. Because when you're on a six week tear, you ain't sleeping much. You don't sleep much. You pass out and come to. Drink again. So I went in, and I had a lucid moment somewhere in the next couple of weeks or so. And I saw in the paper where one of the first things that the Reagan administration had done was that he slashed the mental health funding. And there was a big hospital outside San Jose, California, and they had let everyone out. So, obviously, the police officer just thought I was one of the, you know. <laughs> he's one of the ones that got out of the hospital. At least he's got a roof over his head. I missed out on meeting a lot of really close friends, you know. And in <laughs> all, all of this insanity, I just knew that if I went to Idaho, that it would be different. I went up there on a vacation. I had met and married a second wife that, you know, I was going to turn in soon, you know. She had family up in Idaho, and we went up there trout fishing, and I had strung together a few weeks of sobriety somewhere, and it was beautiful. Man, we were fishing on the Kootenai River, and I ain't kidding you, it looked like something out of National Geographic's channel. These big eagles are swooping down and grabbing these fish out, and oh, this is beautiful, I'll never drink again didn't happen. Ended up, you know, somewhere along the line. I thought that the treatment for alcoholism was to stop drinking. If I quit drinking, I'll be all right, you know. And if I quit drinking and was all right, then I wouldn't need the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I wouldn't need it. I'd quit drinking and I'd be all right. And what I found out from my experience was drinking was what I had to do. I was crazy. Something is seriously broken inside of me. And drinking is the glue that's holding it all together. And I would quit drinking and all these things would come to the surface. This anger, this rage, all this stuff would come out. And one night, in a discussion over what we were going to watch on television... I slammed a bottle of ketchup down on a kitchen table and this little red pattern went on the kitchen wall like, you know, a Jackson Pollock painting, (laughs) and all of a sudden it popped into my head, if you kill her and you kill your stepdaughter, then you'll be all right, because alcoholism tells me over and over and over again that it's not me it's them. If that was right, I'd be okay. If I moved over there, I'd be better. If I had this job, everything would be great then. And I did that over and over and over again. And I slammed that bottle of ketchup down on the table, and I walked over to the kitchen sink, and there was a bread knife that looked like the one that the guy used in Psycho, Laying in the, you know, and all I could hear is, do, my head. I'm getting awful thirsty. Getting awful thirsty. And what happened in that moment was what I'd like to call a miracle because it really was. I would come back to Florence, Kentucky, and I would visit my brother, Mike. And you people had gotten hold of my brother, Mike in Alcoholics Anonymous, and he had been a sober member for a little over five years. And I would come back and visit with him, and I would tell him all these things in my heart of hearts because he's my brother. And he would say, Mark, if you're an alcoholic like I'm an alcoholic, you may have to drink again left untreated. We have a program by which you can arrest your alcoholism and live happily and usefully whole. Why don't you come with us? I'm not like you. One more time. One more time. And what happened was when I was standing in front of that kitchen sink, I heard my brother's voice say to me, I'm in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, Post Falls, actually, close to Coeur d'Alene. And he's in Florence, Kentucky. And I hear his voice in my head say, why don't you give Alcoholics Anonymous? And I walked through that room, sat down on the edge of the bed, and I said, God, I don't need to know what I need to do. Please help me. Please help. And as I was going back through the bathroom, I thought, well, there's some pain pills in there. I got pain pills. I had $13 in my wallet. Might as well have a last drink. I'm going to have to rob a liquor store because $13 ain't enough some reason had to have been that prayer I ended up in that meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous where I met Barefoot Bob. That had to have been God's grace. I cried out for help to those people in that candlelit room. They started me in the process of taking me places that I didn't think it was a good idea to go. Meeting people I really didn't like. You know, emptying waste baskets that I didn't fill up. You know, (laughs) i didn't fill this wastebasket making coffee and i think that's probably the greatest title you can have an alcoholics anonymous coffee maker it really is and we're going to these meetings and stuff and uh this guy bob's working with me regular and i'm going to the jail meetings and doing all that stuff you're supposed to do in alcoholics anonymous and i met this sponsor and i started sharing some stuff. We're working some steps together down by quarter lane Lake. Uh, I was six months sober working for Pepsi-Cola in Spokane, Washington, and uh, I didn't really think anything in my life was changing, personally. But I was in the back of my truck one day when my supervisor walked up to me, and he said, Mark, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know who you're doing with, but I sure hope you keep doing it. I didn't know you people were changing the mark. I didn't know that was even going on. I couldn't even recognize it, yet it was happening. I went home one day, and uh, actually I was at work when it happened. But that same supervisor come up in the back of my Pepsi truck. I think I was a little over six months sober. That same supervisor come up in the back of my Pepsi truck, and he said, uh, he said, give me your invoices. And the truck keys. He said, you need to go home and call your little brother. And I knew that wasn't good news. When you live in Idaho and somebody calls you out of the blue in the middle of the day, hey, you got to call home. It's not going to be good. So it's a 35-mile drive. And my mom had been ill for a while. It's a 35-mile drive. You got a long time to think about it. So I get home and I pick up the phone and I call Monty. And my little brother Monty says... uh, he said, Mom just passed away. No. I said, okay, I'll I'll catch a flight and get there. When I was cradling the phone, I said, God, please don't let me take a drink. And I started packing stuff to take the flight, and uh, I thought, well, I better, you know, go to the meeting. And then I had this idea that, you know what, I got about four days to get there. Nobody would spite, you know. Just gonna have a couple. I'll get there as soon as I can. Everybody will understand. Certainly, everyone will understand. And I went to the meeting. I didn't tell you people. Hey, my mom just died. I need your help. We gotta go get pie. You know, we gotta go have some of that lava lamp orange juice or some of that chocolate syrup. You know? no, I kept my mouth shut. And after the meeting, I'm standing there in a circle. Everybody's holding hands and saying the little prayers. There's this little guy standing next to me. He's about this tall. (laughs) And he's got on a little leather vest and little cowboy boots and a little tiny cowboy hat. I thought he must break miniature horses. (laughs) His name was David. And we're saying this prayer together and I can feel it coming out of his pores. I can smell it coming out of him. He's detoxing right there in the meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. In Idaho, they had a format where you would send around a piece of paper, because they don't have meetings on every corner in Idaho. Some people have drive-aways to catch an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, and, uh, and you would sign your first name and your phone number. And if your prefix was similar, then you live pretty close to each other, and you can catch rides with people that way. Well, this little miniature cowboy David, after we get done saying the prayer, he goes, can I get a ride with you? (laughs) (laughs) Foiled again. (laughs) (laughs) So I put him in the car. He doesn't understand he's interrupting my plans. He doesn't have a clue. I put him in the car, and we go to where he lives, and he's crying and stuff, and I reach over. I'm dropping a stray dog off in a nice neighborhood, you know, out of here. And he goes, I understand Babel. I've been sober six months now. I understand that this is the international cry for help. (laughs) I said, why don't we go get you know, something to eat. we'll go by the house and we'll smoke a bunch of cigarettes and drink a bunch of coffee and I'll get the big book out and maybe we can both throw it. You know? you know, I just don't understand how that works. But I'm quite certain that what happened was, was that I said, God, please help me not take a drink. And God whispered in David's ear and said, hey you need to ask that big guy for a ride home because you're about to save his life, Jew. But he doesn't know he needs you. So I took little David home, got on an airplane, flew home to bury my mother in Alcoholics Anonymous. Five people who carried my mother to her final resting place were members of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's how people answer the international cry for help. My name's Mark, and I'm an alcoholic from out of town. My mom just passed away. We're going for pie. <laughs> Luckily, it was about this time of year, so Frisch's pumpkin was in season. <laughs> back then, it was like six bucks for a whole one. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I flew back to Idaho, and... Twelve or thirteen months later, same thing happened with my dad. He died of a massive heart attack. And uh, Alcoholics Anonymous answers the cry yet again. You know the international cry for help. And that was the catalyst that brought me back here. And uh, I used to take those two little girls to see their grandma, my little angels that I almost burned up. I used to take them to see their mom when they were little, sick, old. I got sober when Courtney was maybe six and a half. Yeah, about that. She's in her 30s now, 34, 33. I've been sober 27 years, so yeah, about that. But they would sit in their little car seats and tell me, I hate you. I hate you for what you've done. And I couldn't figure out how to fix it. I can't figure out how to fix this broken thing. When we hang out together, there's a dead horse in the room, and nobody's talking about the dead horse in the room. So I asked my sponsor, you know, what do I need to do about this dead horse in the room? He said, here's what I want you to do. Your grand sponsor is having a cookout down in Petersburg. I want you to bring your daughters with you, and you guys can be keeper of the flames. Now, I got them as a single dad when they were 13 and 12 through a series of events that was just incredible, really. And I'm raising these two young teenagers when I've been a, you know, I'll visit once in a while kind of dad, even though i was sober. So I went to this cookout, and we're Keeper of the Flames, and I thought, that's a stupid idea, don't you understand? They're not going to like you people. I barely like you, you know. <laughs> and my sponsor said what many people who have helped me along the way have said. Why don't you just do it? Why do you got to argue at every turn? So we went to this camp out up on Chickapin Hill. Snapper, Snapper Bill was my grand sponsor. And they got to see something that wasn't Dad's song and dance. There was hundreds Families of Alcoholics Anonymous up on this hill fellowshipping and laughing. It wasn't, hey, kids, it's going to be different from dad. They got to see other kids laughing with their family, sharing with their family. This thing is an incredible, an incredible thing to be a part of. Feuds and bitternesses, all sorts wiped out, it says, Bill says. I've seen people walk out of asylums and regain their standing hell i was almost one of them (laughs) i've restored that relationship with my two daughters they live in atlanta georgia Uh, that's a crowded place i spend i spend my spare time down there though when i'm on vacation i'm in atlanta if you're ever in atlanta they have wonderful meetings there as well and alcoholics i want to tell you a little story that happened to me recently Uh, I worked for the Norfolk Southern Railroad, and that was, that was through a process of walking through an open door. A guy I used to sponsor, I was talking to him at the old Alano Club, and he says, actually I said to him, I said, man, I'm working in this little machine shop, I'm not much, I, I don't like it, <laughs> I don't like a lot of stuff. <laughs> And about a week or so later, the phone rings, and he says, hey, the railroad's getting ready to hire. Would you be interested? And they said, just walk through the open door is what they told me here. I don't know why I always got to put my arms on the door frame before I walk through. But I walked through the open door, and I've been working for the Norfolk Southern Railroad. I got myself early in sobriety. I got myself into some serious, serious credit card debt. Now, once you start paying your bills, guess what you got? Good credit. <laughs> yeah, I'll take that card. Yeah. So I got my dug myself a pretty substantial hole with plastic. I had a great job at the railroad. It was working 12, 12 hours a day, five days a week. It was paying fantastic. So I started doubling up on those payments to pay those credit cards off and uh, got them paid off. And it was a pretty substantial amount of money every month. When I got them paid off, I'm doing the happy dance in the kitchen. All right, I got this paid off, you know. And and I immediately thought, you know what, I'm going to buy a sports car. You know know what, a bald-headed fat man needs a convertible. (laughs) (laughs) Immediately followed by, I want you to put that money in checking that can't be right. (laughs) Can't be right. They told me in Alcoholics Anonymous that I can count on this intuitive voice that will come to me when I'm doing this, that I can learn to trust it, even if I don't think it's right. I don't think that's right. I need a convertible. (laughs) (laughs) So I started plunking that money in the bank every month and It started mounting up pretty good. I'm like, hey, still want that convertible? No, can't have a convertible. (laughs) About, it's coming up on a year now. It's actually eight and a half months. Eight and a half months ago, my daughter, my oldest daughter, Courtney, and her husband, Jonathan, came up for a visit, and we're in the kitchen. We have a wonderful relationship, my daughters and I now, because of Alcoholics Anonymous and you folks. We really do. and It's a fantastic thing. They said, hey, Dad, why don't you come out in the backyard? There's something we want to talk to you about. So we're sitting out in the backyard, and my daughter, Courtney, says, pretty good hunk of money, Dad. We're adopting your first granddaughter. And this is how much we need. I looked at my daughter, Courtney. When I got the check that went into the bank, before I wrote them to check for the amount they needed. It was $40 short of the amount they asked it for. This thing is an amazing thing to be able to. I'll tell you one other little story. One day I was so troubled by something I can't even remember what it was. That happens to me a lot. I get pretty worked up over, oh, wait a minute. It was an electrical impulse. I love to go walking in the quiet, because that's where my spirit talks to me. There's no doubt in my mind that when I get quiet, I hear things that are impossible to hear otherwise. Whatever was troubling me, I decided to go to Big Bone, down to Big Bone Park. And I'm walking up in the woods, and Big Bone's not that big. I don't know, you know, people that are from around here, Big Bone's not a big park. It's a great place to go and stuff, but it's not a big park. It's not like you're going to get lost. And I'm walking along and I'm, I'm talking to God about where in the hell are you? Where have you gone? And all of a sudden I hear, hey! I reel around and here comes this guy out of the bramble. He's all covered with burrs. He's got this, he's got this real long-haired dog is lost with him. He's all covered with burrs. He comes up to me and he goes, how do you get out of here? (laughs) I looked at him with this expression on my face that said, how did you get lost in Big Bone, number one? You know, it's not that, you know. But what I said was, well, if you follow this path right here, you can take it down into the parking lot and just hang up, you know. You're right in the main park or you can follow this path here and it'll empty out into the campground and you just follow the road down into the main park. And he looked at me and he goes, man, whatever you do, don't get off the path. (laughs) He said, you'll get lost. I walked about 10 paces away from that man and I turned around to look and see if he was real because I suddenly heard in my heart of hearts what he had said. And I know that that is the voice of my creator that I will only hear when I try to help somebody else find their path. That's the only time I ever hear. It's a wonderful thing to be a part of this fellowship. I would like to thank you for listening to my story and for the laughter you've been a wonderful <laughs> wonderful crowd thank you